You're listening to Right Where You Are, hosted by New York Times bestselling author, creator, and speaker, Jason Wright. With inspiring guest interviews and Jason's unique lens on life, this is the place to see the good in the world, to lift and be lifted, no matter your starting point, to make a difference that matters. And we'll do it all together, right where you are. Hello, friends. It's Jason Wright, and you're here. Thank you at Right Where You Are. Today's guest has a story and a place, a farm to be exact, that will inspire, lift, and maybe even heal you. She and her family live in Chester, Virginia, which is near Richmond, and it's not too far down the road from me up here in Woodstock. I am so pleased to introduce the owner and operator of Shoefly Farm. She is Brianna Merrill. Hi, Brianna. How are you? Hi, I'm good. Let's assume that the folks listening today, that none of them know your story, your journey, and they are meeting you with me for the very first time. So tell us about Shoe Fly Farm mm-hmm. and why it exists. So um, Shoe Fly Farm, we um, purchased this place in 2018. We did not go looking for it. And I think that's a really important tidbit that, you know, we might touch back on in another, you know, area later, but we didn't go looking for it. We kind of feel like it found us. And um, so in 2018, we um, found this farm and, um, or it found us, and we really focus on healing and happiness. And it started first with our family because it came kind of in the middle of a very tumultuous, very um, hard time for our family, medically speaking. And, you know, it's kind of hard to give that time a word. I mean, medical woes, uh, health problems doesn't seem sufficient <laughs> to say, but we were really struggling. And uh, this farm came along and we found that there was just a sense of peace and healing here. And it didn't take long for us to realize that it wasn't just meant for our family. It was meant for more people than us. And so we um, own about 50 acres and the main areas that we concentrate our efforts on, but are not limited to is horses, um, their rescue rehab. Uh, We do um, our other area that's really big is we do free farm visits. And that is just to, allow our community to come and visit with our goats, our pigs, all of that. And really it's all about sharing a bit of that healing, that happiness, uh, those feelings that we, we really find so unique and so refreshing being here on the farm. So it's all about how do we share that? What avenues do we take? And it's, it's just a really beautiful, we don't farm anything. People often ask me that, what do you farm? Cause you have a farm. And I go, Oh, I don't know. Happiness. Does that count? I, you know, (laughs) Oh, I I'm actually horrible. Like I kill just about every plant imaginable, but I do a really good job keeping animals alive. So there's that. (laughs) (laughs) I love the idea that you are dedicated to rescue and rehab because it feels a little bit knowing some of your story, uh, and having read, um, a fair amount of what you've written online that 
your family and your children needed a little bit of a rescue and a rehab. And that's maybe why the farm found you. So, so why is that the case? Tell us about your really, really, really special kids. Yeah. So um, we definitely needed, and I would even say still do, you know, it's, it's, it's an ongoing saga, but um, I have five children and um, my husband and I, we've been married about 20 years. Um, we lived in, we moved to Virginia in 2011 with our little family of five. And what's interesting is we were kind of seeking initially, this is why we moved to Virginia. We kind of envisioned this farm life, not quite on the scale, but things just didn't work out. And we ended up in the suburbs of Midlothian. And we really thought that's where we were going to be. Um, and we were just poking along kind of as a normal family, you know, I mean, I realize people say, oh, define normal, but you know, to me now I look back and think I probably had a quote unquote normal life. You know, it was chaotic with five kids. They're all really close in age, but in 2016, all of that changed. Our oldest daughter at the time, um, we had just started experiencing some really weird things. Like she, um, I think at that point had broken her bone four times in 18 months, a different bone. And we had no explanation for it. It can all be pinpointed to September 11th, 2016. And that's the day that I went to get my daughter up for church. And, um, when we pull the covers back, she said, my knee really hurts. And she exposed that her knee was red and swollen and tender. And I kind of looked at her thinking, you know, you've hit a new, a new low kind of in the sense that how did you injure yourself in your sleep kind of thing? You went to bed fine and, and you slept and now you're not. And that um, is kind of the short of it because about eight days later, she was in a wheelchair and we did not know at the time um, what her diagnosis was from September till December was spent just taking her from doctor to doctor, specialist to specialist as she rapidly declined in front of our eyes. Um, it, you know, it started with that one knee in days it jumped to the other, jumped down to her ankles, up to her hips. Um, and we actually had to take her all the way up to Philadelphia to Children's Hospital Philadelphia CHOP. And that was in December of 2016. And that's where she received her diagnosis. Um, and it's called CRPS, Complex Regional Pain Syndrome. And it's actually the most painful um, condition a human can have on the McGill pain scale. So they'll list it and you'll see it says things like natural childbirth, which is up there, ladies. So feel justified <laughs> in that. Um, it's one of the top ones. But it's above things like you know, cancer, um, amputation, and they're talking amputation, no drugs, you know, so CRPS is, is the king of all it sits at the top. And unfortunately for our little girl, um, she had a, what they deemed a systemic case. Um, it was all over her body. It was all over. Um, so 24 hours a day, seven days a week, she was experiencing the most pain a human being can pretty much all over her body. Um, if anybody's ever like pinched a nerve in your back, um, CRPS is a nerve pain. It's the default is in your sympathetic nerve system. Um, and it basically loops that pain signal that your nerves will have. Like if you've ever had a nerve injury, you know what we're talking about. Um, but you just amplify that. So um, she was diagnosed 
And unfortunately, it's not only a rare condition, but to have it um, to the extent she did, uh, she, I believe when we finally did the, the, the work, she's like, you know, one out of 200 million or something like that. I mean, she's just, she's very rare to the extent that she had it, but um, so it took a lot of time to find somebody to help. There's not a lot of research. There's not a lot of case studies. Uh, and, and so there wasn't a lot of help and she just rapidly declined. And, and thankfully we were able to um, find that help. And we took her actually out to Utah was one of the places where there was a doctor willing to treat CRPS patients, particularly kids with systemic cases. And she received um, CalMare therapy. We were out there about four weeks in January and February of 2017. And that's when her CRPS went into remission. So she stopped experiencing that intense, intense pain. But I mean, still to this day, she deals with a life of daily pain. It took her about 18 months to be able to walk again without assistance of, you know, crutches or anything like that. And then of course, in the process of that, if that wasn't enough, her brother that's just a year younger than her actually during that time. So in 2016, we were still trying to figure out, you know, my oldest daughter and my son was complaining of nightly headaches. Every time he laid down, he'd have a headache. And so in November of 2016 was the first time I took him in to see a specialist. We actually went to a sleep doctor because we thought it had something to do with the sleep because he would say, you know, when I lay down to go to bed, I have a headache. Unfortunately, his is a, a lot longer timeline because it wasn't even until September 11th, the same day, um, a, exactly a year later in 2017, we even, I would say that's initially when they found his tumor. Um, it's a fibrous dysplasia tumor. Once again, it was fibrous dysplasia tumors aren't that rare. Um, they're fairly common. However, where my son's was located is very rare. And once again, I think when the doctors finally figured out what it was, um, they I think they found one case study um, of where a surgical team was able to successfully remove it. They just didn't have anything to go on. In 2017, they actually got a small image of it, but they misdiagnosed it. So we spent um, until, it wasn't until, and I had to kind of go back through and flip through my notes because it was so long. It really wasn't until December, 2018, seeing a specialist that they revisited that initial CAT scan that was done a little over a year and um, discovered what it was. And then from there, it was this kind of whirlwind to get things figured out. Um, by then the tumor was much, much larger and he wasn't able to actually receive the surgery to remove most of it till March of 2019. And, and we kind of thought, okay, wow, that was, that was a lot. And we got through that. But then in 2019, my youngest daughter started showing some signs, um, of just poor growth, stuff like that. And in August, she was diagnosed with something actually her other brother has, which is called eosinophilic esophagitis. But once again, she had a very extreme case, very rare. Um, treatments didn't work on her like they had even worked on her brother. Um, and we were in and out of the hospital for surgeries. Um, she would get food impactions three times, all in 2020. 
And then in um, August of 2020, so just last year, my youngest was diagnosed with CRPS. And um, we were more prepared for it this time. We knew um, it was kind of on the front of the list. At the same time, it wasn't because I just couldn't fathom. I just couldn't fathom that um, that our luck would be that bad, that our odds would be that bad. And she too um, had a fairly systemic case, not quite as bad as our oldest daughter. And that's mostly because we were able to catch it. So within, within eight days, she was wheelchair bound. We kind of knew what it was, um, but uh, CRPS doesn't have a, a one test to diagnosis. It's clinical, you know, presentation and kind of process of elimination. So we had to go through that. We had to make sure it wasn't juvenile rheumatoid arthritis, things like that. Um, but we got that diagnosis just thankfully 12 days after onset and did the same process with her. We knew what worked. We sought it out. She didn't respond quite as well as our oldest daughter. So she actually had a series of treatments, but um, she is now has CR, her CRPS is in remission and it's been in remission since about October of last year. And then of course, started in and out of that as a bunch of other, you know, little things. The one major thing would be, would be that in 2017, in April was when my daughter was able with a lot of physical therapy to get out of her wheelchair and walk with assistance. And we were kind of just plugging away. Um, and then in May was when I started showing some really, really scary signs of PTSD. And, um, but I didn't know at the time. And I wasn't actually diagnosed till September of 2017 with severe PTSD. And I remember when they diagnosed me, I thought that's, there's no way, you know, I, I'm, that's like what soldiers get, you know, and I haven't been in a war and I haven't, you know, you justify that away. And I just remember the psychiatrist kind of looking at me and saying, you know, it's called post-traumatic stress. And he helped, you know, kind of remind me, he's like, you watched your daughter slowly die the most painful death someone can, um, knowing, and we did know that if we couldn't stop it, that would be the end, you know, that would be her story. And he kind of post, you know, was the one to kind of say, you know, that goes against everything a mother or any parent, you know, really strives for. So yeah, I'd say you fought a war. <laughs> it's like, okay. Yeah. So anyway, so balancing all of that, uh, it's a lot. That's probably my longest answer I'll give, but it's because it's hard to, and that's, believe it or not, that's the condensed version. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. There's so much there to sort of wrap our heads yeah. around. I cannot, uh, you know, as a father of four and thinking about, you know, my own kids trials, it sure puts into perspective what maybe my family and others that are listening have been through when they, try even for a second to walk in your shoes and to, to imagine what it would be like to watch, you know, in your words, your, your daughter slowly die, wondering, will we figure this out in time to change the, you know, to change her story. Um, yeah. Also, as you said so beautifully, it unfolded so quickly over the course of a, of a few years. What, first of all, how did the siblings support one another as just hit after hit after hit sort of came. And did you, did you struggle to find balance and caring for and loving and giving attention and, 
you know, when, when you would hit a season where all of your attention was on your daughter and then it's on your son, how in the world did you manage to love unconditionally and support and give all of the attention that they needed? Um, maybe those that didn't need as much on a given day because of what their siblings were going through. That's definitely, I think, the source of a lot of worry anyway for a parent of multiples, right? Uh, is are they all getting what they need from me? And it definitely gets amplified when one child is more in need. And there, um, <clears throat> there were times where that was the source of most of my angst was I was so worried about my other children. Because especially with Emmeline, you know, my oldest, she, that first diagnosis, that, that first little while when she was, had an active CRPS case, she couldn't walk. She couldn't, you know, I was 24 seven her, I carried her everywhere. Um, if she couldn't get there in the wheelchair, I had to bathe her. I had to, eventually she lost use, most of the use of her hands. So I was caring for her full time and, and just the emotional um, care was there mostly for her too. The other kids, they definitely grew up faster. Um, so the positives from all that, I think were, I mean, and the interesting thing was, is lo and behold, they kind of didn't realize that it would be their turn pretty soon as well. It kind of, you know, checked them all off. I, I have one, four out of five of my children. Um, have this severe diagnosis of something rare and weird and demanding and life altering. So we actually kind of joke that my one middle child, she somehow is, you know, got some amazing super mutant gene because she, she, she was able to so far be spared, except she wasn't spared the, the demand on the family, you know, for a while, it was very insightful because for a while you just want to comfort. You just want to say, it's okay. It's going to be okay. And here's all the positive things about this. And, and you want to comfort them and you want to take it away. And, um, I remember actually my youngest at the time, she was just very, um, already just a very empathetic child. Um, I had tried to soothe my kids as much as possible. And in that moment, um, she said, I'm, I'm so scared. Emmeline's going to die. Um, and she caught me in a moment of weakness where I, I knew, I knew that if we did not find an answer, that was, that was what was gonna, that was our reality. And instead of me saying, oh no, no, sweetie, it's okay. It, you know, it's all right. Instead of trying to gloss over her feelings, I just said, you know what, honey, I'm scared too, you know? And I sat in that moment with her and I just let us both feel those feelings. And I started parenting different from that point on. I started parenting them different. I realized that my job wasn't to try and make them feel better about this because I couldn't even do that for myself. It was trying to help them learn to function as an individual and as a family and learn from all of this. And that starts with being validated. It starts with saying, yeah, I can see why you're scared. That's scary. That's a lot to handle, you know, and, and, and that's what I was looking for. We had so many wonderful people and they didn't know what to do. And they didn't understand that 
my world had stopped turning, you know, and it's a really weird thing. People who have experienced the death of a loved one or just something traumatic will know what I'm talking about, but it's this weird, eerie sensation of you're just thinking my world has stopped. Everything about it has changed. And you can kind of look out and see that people are going about their normal lives. They're taking their kids to school. They're having family gatherings. They're going on vacation and they're living, you know, life. And you think your world's still turning, but, but I'm left back here. And it's a very lonely, lonely place. And I started to realize I didn't want my kids to feel lonely because our world had stopped, you know, and we weren't turning yet again. And so the best thing I could do would, was just to mourn with them to um, be empathetic and to just hold them and validate them in, in what they were feeling and going through. And then together try and come up with ways that we felt comfortable moving forward with where we were at, you know? Did you ever say, all right, God, we've dealt with this and with that and with this and with, another one of those it's enough yeah I did um I think I was one of those people where I was solid enough in my relationship and faith to know that bad things happen to good people right so I wasn't angry with God because this had happened but I make no mistake I was so angry with him I was so angry. And looking back, um, I think a lot of it had to do with this sense of, we always want to find a reason or blame to place. And in this sense, there was, there was no place to place blame. It's just what didn't exist. And, and so my anger and my blame went to God. It was the easiest, right. And, And he became my punching bag for lack of, of better terms. And, It was mostly because I felt that he had forsaken me. Um, Not that he had given me or allowed these trials, but I did not feel peace. I did not feel comfort. There was so much chaos. There were so much things changing um, that I would spend all night up researching, researching these, you know, these, these little, little tiny bits of information, trying to find links to help these children get a diagnosis. Cause I knew everything was riding on, you know, you can't fight what you don't know. So I knew we had to get diagnosis and everybody was just, I don't know. I don't know. I was, I would just be up all through the night researching, researching, you know, and I remember begging him, just give me something, give me point me in a direction. And I can still to this day, though, now I can look back and see the tender mercies. When I was in the thick of it, um, there was no big moment of, oh, we received inspiration or, oh, I was so comforted. And a lot of that, I think, had to do with that same concept. I was in the thick of a lot of raw, really horrible emotions. I wasn't ready to be pulled out of them yet. I had one friend, I kind of confided to her how angry I was at God and how I didn't understand what I had done so wrong that he wouldn't comfort me, that he wouldn't um, 
you know, tell me everything's going to be okay, that he wouldn't give me inspiration for some miraculous doctor that's going to fix everything. And I said, I just kind of feel like I'm throwing a tantrum and I'm really ashamed about that. And um, she gave me some great advice that really changed everything for me in that sense. And she said, he knows, he knows that you're putting it all on him, but, and even if you're really throwing this spiritual, you know, kind of tantrum, he's just going to love you through it. So don't worry about that. Just like any parent, you know, is going to let their child kind of vent when they're in a very difficult situation. And even a lot of times we'll let them misplace that blame. Um, It doesn't change the fact that we're going to love them through it. And when she said that to me, um, that was the beginning of me being able to start thinking a little differently. And, um, and honestly, from that point, I've been able to rebuild a relationship with God and my savior um, that I couldn't have ever even imagined. So I kind of had to be broken down and even my relationship with him to then build something so much more beautiful that was unexpected. And I didn't even know I needed. That is one of the most beautiful, I think, spiritual analogies that I have ever heard, certainly articulated that way. The idea that we as mortal parents sometimes, and I certainly have, we, we sit there and let our kids because we know they need to, to, mm-hmm. to vent or to blame or to, as they grow, because they're, our kids aren't perfect and yeah. their tempers flare and their hormones are raging and, <laughs> right? and they're, they're changing so much, you know, from day to day to day. And so sometimes we just sit there in the living room and we let our kids let some steam off in an appropriate way toward yeah. a mother and a father. Um who love them very, very much. And so well said that that certainly would apply to, you know, to a heavenly father who is perfect and loves us perfectly and knows that sometimes um, that's maybe just what we need is to vent a little bit. And who has more broad shoulders and the ability to, to hear that and absorb that and love us still unconditionally. And I just have to say, I find it so refreshing because I have spoken through the years to so many people who have been through so many hard things. And it is unusual to chat with someone who is willing to be so authentic and transparent to say, I was really angry at God. Yeah. And so I appreciate for me, and I think our listeners will as well, um, how honest and open you're willing to be about that and that the relationship has taken some time to rebuild. And it certainly yeah. sounds like it's in a better place today. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, it, it is. And that's something that, you know, I gained through all of this was realizing that um, so many people out there are going through hard things. And back before my world changed and stopped turning, I was just plugging away and, you know, taking care of my brood of five and being wife and mother and going along and blissfully unaware of some of the just 
horrendous and tremendous struggles that people go through every day. And then after going through that, just being able to, to empathize and take that moment to say, whoa, 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 you know, in this moment, this person who's venting or whatever, they don't need me to say, it's going to be okay. And here's all the reasons why. They just need me to sit there in their dark pit, validate that this hurts, right? And validate those feelings. And I think once we're more open and authentic about what we're going through, it allows people that sense to be open and authentic about what they're going through. And that's when I think you can really connect with people. I find it hard to connect if we're all just being really surface, you know, Mm. this is what it looks like on the surface for me and my life. And I'm not saying that we've got to get on social media and disclose every little, you know, detail or wrongdoing that's happening in our lives. But I definitely started using my social media platform to talk about very openly. um, I, the really hard stuff, but I always made it a point to point out or end with the positive. And because I was willing to be so raw and honest, I was able to connect with people on a whole new level that I was missing out on. I was missing the mark on, and the relationships got deeper and truer. And because we, we felt like we could be that way with each other. And I think the same, once again, basis is that relationship with my heavenly father. I, I was as raw as as it could be with him. And because I kind of authentically opened up to him, I was able to connect on a level with my savior, that concept of feeling alone and feeling these horrible feelings, thinking nobody knows, but then, you know, we, we know when we read the scriptures and stuff, oh, but the savior knows. And that's a knowledge that you have up in your brain. But when you're feeling something that doesn't always translate. So to finally have my heart connect, my soul connect with that truth that the savior truly did know and feel how I felt is a wonderful foundation to build a new and just stronger relationship with him on. So let's transition back to the farm as we begin to wrap up here today. Mm -hmm. Bri, is this a, is this a hobby? Is it a calling? Is it, what is this place? So it's a hundred percent a calling and don't mistake my conviction for the fact that I am, I am truly absolutely humbled by it. And the reason I feel so confident that it's a calling is, as I mentioned earlier, the farm found us. We weren't looking. We had in fact just remodeled our home over, um, about 20 minutes from here in a neighborhood. And we had remodeled it thinking if our daughter is in a wheelchair again or needs assistance, you know, these here in Virginia, we have these little colonial homes, you know, everything's partitioned off all these tiny rooms, which I I thought was really endearing. And I loved when we first moved here coming from Arizona. But uh, when you've got somebody in a wheelchair, it gets really tricky 
So we had just, I mean, major remodel, major remodel and told ourselves we're going to stay in this home <clears throat> until our kids are all graduated. And then we'll, we'll go build and have our little farm somewhere, you know, when they're all done with school. And a friend was the realtor on this place and just asked my husband's opinion about how he was listing it and if it appealed to um, somebody that loved horses, because we both have background in horses, grew up with them in Arizona. Uh, my grandfather had a ranch. His grandfather had a ranch. My grandfather bred and raced racehorses. So they were a huge part of our lives. So he asked his opinion. And then when Golden, my husband, just happened to say, hey, um, you never guessed what he asked my opinion on. Let me show you this. We both just instantly got this feeling we're supposed to go look at that place. And we pulled up and I mean, it was beautiful. It was beautiful, but that is not what sold us. It wasn't even the fact that, uh, <clears throat> you know, it was kind of what we had wanted moving to Virginia, kind of what we had looked for anyway. None of that was a factor. Actually, my husband, we looked at the property and my husband and the realtor were inside discussing, you know, all the important stuff. And I was talking myself out of it. I was talking myself out of all the reasons why this is silly, why we shouldn't get this farm, all the things I didn't like about it. Uh, and I went out to the yard and about halfway between the home and the barn. I'm staring up at this beautiful old barn that was built, um, well, completed in 1940. And I'm just kind of standing there. And I had one of the most profound spiritual experiences of my life. And it was so simple and it was so beautiful. And it's hard to put into words. But when I try to describe it to people, I say, I have all these worries going through my mind. And then I just feel a very, strong presence, but it wasn't an individual. It was this feeling that this land had a soul and it recognized me. It knew who I was and it was rejoicing that I had finally arrived. And, um, you know, people can pick that apart and kind of try and determine what it was I felt. Um, I still, like I said, it's hard to kind of put into words, but it was just this very overpowering feeling that I was meant for this land. It knew I was coming. It knew who I was. Um, and that there was something that really, really important that was supposed to happen. And so against all odds, because we really had all these hiccups to get through, uh, we were able to obtain this place in 2018. And it was probably one of the smoothest transactions that <laughs> we had ever had in terms of real estate. It was just all because it was supposed to. And in that process was when I was able to discover why. And it was because I knew that this land could mean this land, this lifestyle, these animals that we then, of course, immediately started collecting um, much quicker, I think, than my husband was ready for. But um, it wasn't just about us. It wasn't just about us. Um, I, I, and through the years and through more very um, sacred experiences, I have learned the truth that the reason 
I was called to this stewardship. I, this place is not mine. It's not mine. It's been made very clear of that. This is a stewardship that we have over this farm, over these animals, over this property. Um, that, that that was a calling and part of it had to do with because of who I was, because I was someone willing to understand and empathize that this place had something to offer so many more people than just one family. And though my family would benefit from it, um, and it was meant for us, it was so vital that we share it. It was so vital to our community, to our friends, our family, anybody willing to just give it a shot. Um, and, and I think that's why maybe that feeling that, you know, the soul of shoe fly was happy to see me because it knew my soul and it knew that my soul was, I need to share. I need to lift. I need to do whatever I can so that that mother or that daughter or whoever, when they're feeling those feelings that I have felt that deep pit that they don't feel alone. That They know there's somebody out there that can say, that's hard. I know that's hard. I know that hurts. I'm just going to sit here and cry with you. But if you do it here on Shoe Fly, there's just something about it. There's just something, a very healing property to this place and the animals. And it's very therapeutic, very therapeutic. And so, you know, we don't claim we offer therapy, but honestly, I feel like that's what it is. And everybody needs it. You know, originally we set out to just help families with chronically ill children, you know, right? So we were just branching out to families that were like us. And then the pandemic hit last year. And I quickly realized everybody, everybody needs to get out, get into nature, have time together. Everybody's struggling. This is so hard. And we don't need to struggle separately, even if we're socially distant, right? We still don't need to struggle separately. So we opened our farm visits to anybody and everybody. There's no criteria. And it was the best decision we made for this farm. Best decision. So if someone perhaps lives in driving distance mm -hmm. and they want to come check you out, where do they get more information about you and what you do and how to get there? So as far as the farm goes, we have a website. It's called Shoe Fly Farm Virginia. Unfortunately, it couldn't just be Shoe Fly Farm. I think there's some place in Washington that has that. So don't go there. But it's shoeflyfarmvirginia.com. And on there, it gives pretty much all the information you're going to, you're going to need, uh, where we're located, how to contact us, how to book free farm visits, gives a little bit of our background. We do events here, all that kind of stuff. So, and then we're actually still in process of, uh, starting our, our nonprofit. And that's actually called Ranshaw Ranch. And that is kind of the other side of our property, the 47 acres where we house the horses and we're just getting going with that. But eventually people will be able to, if they're interested in being a part of the rehab of some of these rescue horses, uh, donations, it's a nonprofit, stuff like that. People will be able to almost kind of pick like, what are you here for? You know, what do you want to partake of? Are you more kind of into the rehab of the horses? Is it just 
having a beautiful afternoon and time with your loved ones and in our, in with our goats and our pigs, which are rescues and some of our horses, some of our horses, we bring them out and they do tricks for the kids, you know, all that kind of stuff. So there's a little bit of everything for somebody, but I would definitely check our website. I would say. Shoe fly farm, Virginia.com. Yeah.com. Awesome. All right, so we come to our last two questions. Everyone gets them. There's no right answer, no wrong answer. Always mm-hmm. a great answer. So what does the theme of this podcast, right where you are, what does that mean to you? So I actually absolutely love this because I really think that concept of meeting somebody um, right where they are was pivotal to, to, I would say rebuilding, um, who I am and accepting, um, what I went through and where I'm going, you know, um, (sighs) the emotions that came out during all of this aren't something I would have ever pinned myself to experience. there was a lot of, like I said earlier, some shame associated with some of the feelings I went through, like, you know, blaming and being angry with God. Um, there was a lot of shame and, um, stuff associated with my PTSD. Um, you know, people say fairly lightly, our culture will use the word panic attack. Oh, this happened. And I, and I, and I almost gave me a panic attack or or an anxiety attack. And, I was one of those. I used that term lightly until I actually had them. And, and it's different for everybody, but for mine, they were absolutely crippling, um, physically, mentally, you know, I, I would, you know, I couldn't breathe. I would vomit everything in my con, you know, all the contents of my stomach. I would be a sweaty mess. I couldn't stand. So I would basically after a panic attack be curled up, you know, wherever I fell. And it was very humiliating and it was very hard to feel like I was a strong person when I would go through those, those panic and anxiety attacks. And, but being able to accept and say, you know what, where I'm at is, is where I'm supposed to be right now. And, and having people being willing to be with me right where I was was crucial to me being able to move past the hard stuff. And I also think that that's exactly what we're trying to do with this farm. We're trying to be here and meet our community and and serve our community and our fellow neighbors um, right where we're at, do what we can, um, be accepting of them and where they're at. And, and, their willingness to accept that my family's still a hot mess. We are, <laughs> I mean, we are a big hot mess and, and we're okay with that. And so we make sure that we let other people know, Hey, we're okay. If you're a hot mess, just come on over. We'll just be hot messes together. It's fine. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. I love that so much. Okay. So our last question, if someone listening today in two or 20 or 200 years has forgotten everything about our discussion, but one thing, what is the one thing you would most want people to remember about you, your mission, this calling your family? What is your one thing? So 
I thought about that. And at first it was kind of hard to pin down, but then it became really clear to me that the basis for everything we're doing here um, and everything I've become and my family has become really stems from this concept of gaining empathy and practicing it. And I would just say how crucial that is for all of us to develop um, is this empathy and then not only develop it, but put it into practice. And when we can truly be empathetic, which, you know, there's that difference being sympathetic says, I'm so sorry for you, Jason, you know, that this happened to you, but being empathetic is me, is me feeling that pain with you. Um, and, you know, bringing that on to me, it really brings a new level of that mourn with those that mourn. Right. And we definitely, though we didn't lose any of our children, we mourn, make no mistake. We mourn the loss of future plans of capacities and capabilities. And there are so many people out there that mourn and we're, we're asked to mourn with them, to comfort them, but you can't properly mourn with somebody if you're not willing to be empathetic. And I think it's a beautiful thing because it's not something that you have to go through a really traumatizing event like myself to gain. It's not an attribute that is only reserved for, you know, people who just go through the unthinkable or the unbelievable. And a great example of that is I have this one dear friend and um, she's living what I would say the quote unquote normal life, right? She's got three kids and um, they just kind of plug along and sure, everybody's got tough things. That is a truth in life, but she hasn't experienced anything on the level that I have. But this friend, um, she is an expert empathizer. And when I was raging, when I was mad about a doctor missing the diagnosis or whatever, um, she was she was right there with me. Um, anytime I gave her an update, I would be surprised for her to just cry, to just cry and um, she was right there with me and, and that's just something she had developed. And the benefit to me was huge to have somebody, I knew this friend, you know, truly empathized and felt what I felt and was willing to kind of come down in that hole with me and put her arm around me and, you know, not always offer the, the fix to just say, it's okay. I'm here. You just cry. Right. Or whatever it is, or, or that, that is, that was so unfair. That sounds so harsh, whatever it was, she was willing to just be by my side and same concept, love me through it. And that was absolutely critical and crucial. And so I really think that if you're going to take away anything from this, it would be that I hope that people understand the importance and the power of empathy. Um, it, it's really life altering and what you can do <clears throat> for yourself and how you can grow. But, but more so you grow because of what you're willing to do and doing for others. And don't you do that well. So thank you for, for being you, for being willing, as I said earlier, to be just so real and 
um, your your truest self before an audience of people, most of whom you haven't met, don't know, and might never have an opportunity to meet other than this introduction through the podcast today. So thank you again for joining us. You are a gem. Oh, thank you so much for giving me this opportunity. It really is wonderful. And I'm very humbled by it and very grateful, very, very grateful that um, I got this great opportunity. And I'm going to put the family in the car. And one of these days soon, we're going to come to the farm uh, for a little rehab and refresher and reboot. And um, Mm -hmm. I I can't wait to do that. So we'll we'll see you soon. Thank you for joining us on Right Where You Are. For more information about Jason and his projects, visit him online at jasonfright.com or on social media at facebook.com slash jfwbooks or on Instagram at jasonfright. And be sure to subscribe to Right Where You Are wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. This has been a production of Right Media Productions. Copyright 2021 by Jason F. Wright. All rights reserved.